The Crime Tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others. Listener discretion is advised. Diana Lachey Fairchild was born on July 8, 1992, in a Californian prison where her mother Antoinette was serving out a sentence for auto theft. After a brief stay with her mother, confined to the prison walls, little Ziana was temporarily placed into foster care in Nevada while social workers tracked down Antoinette's maternal grandmother, Lita Domingo, in her native Hawaii. Ziana spent her early childhood years surrounded by her large and extended Hawaiian family. Raised by her great-grandmother Lita and her 36-year-old great-aunt Stephanie Kahalakulu, both of whom she called Mummy. Ziana blossomed into a smiley, happy and giggly little girl. She was described as a neat child who used to wipe down each step before climbing up a slide. She loved playing on the beach and her favourite colour was purple. Meanwhile, Ziana's mother Antoinette had completed her prison sentence and had seemingly got her life back on track. Now married to Gerard Robinson, she went on to have three more children, all boys, and in August 1998, the then six-year-old went to live with them in Vallejo, a city in California's San Francisco Bay area. Shortly after arriving, however, the family became homeless after raw sewage flowed into their apartment. The family of six were forced to move into Jared's grandparents' house, where things became strained. Within weeks, Antoinette had left, leaving her husband Gerard with their three boys and Ziana. Less than two months after reconnecting with her mother and meeting her three little brothers, Ziana was back in Hawaii and back into the loving arms of the only two mummies she ever really knew. You are listening to The Crime Tree. I'm your host Jasmine and this is the story of Ziana Fairchild. After leaving her husband Jared and her four children, 30-year-old Antoinette Robinson got herself a job as a taxi driver, where she met and fell in love with the company's mechanic, 33-year-old Robert Bobby Turnbow. Quickly moving in with him to his rundown Georgia Street studio apartment in the rougher parts of downtown Vallejo. Less than eight months after her first failed attempt to reconnect with her daughter, Antoinette demanded her daughter back. By this time, great-aunt Stephanie was in the process of relocating her family to Colorado, and great-grandmother Nita was suffering severe arthritis as well as another joint disease. With no legal standing, Stephanie and Nita had no choice but to let Ziana go, returning her to her mother in June 1999, just before her seventh birthday. Six months later, Ziana Fairchild would be gone having seemingly vanished from the street somewhere outside her apartment on the cold, wintry morning of December 9th, 1999. After failing to return home from school that day, Ziana's mother Antoinette called the police and reported her as missing. Ziana was a second-grade student at Mare Island Elementary School and was usually responsible for getting herself to and from the bus stop, which was located four blocks from her apartment complex. But on that morning, Antoinette's boyfriend Bobby told police that he had driven Ziana to the bus stop instead, claiming she arrived there safely. Antoinette adding that she had made sure Ziana was in clean clothes and had a full tummy before she left that morning. Within hours of being reported as missing, police officers were conducting searches of the apartment complex and surrounding area for any sign of the seven-year-old. Speaking to neighbours, investigators soon learned that for the past six months, 
Little Ziana had led a miserable and sad existence, often left to fend for herself in the complex's hallways, unfed, dirty and lonely, a far cry from the happy, healthy and vibrant childhood she once knew. The only saving grace she had was that her best friend Antonisha, also seven, lived in the same complex with her mother, Catherine Hood. Catherine did her best to keep an eye out for Ziana, taking her with them to McDonald's or to get ice cream, and walking with her and her own daughter to the bus stop whenever Ziana was on time. She told detectives that Ziana was regularly locked out of her apartment and would often make her way over to hers to play with Antonisha. Neighbours also reported that two days prior to her disappearance, Ziana was seen sitting outside her apartment door, her school backpack beside her, with her head in her hands, sobbing. She had missed the bus and on returning home, it appeared the apartment was empty as no one would open the door for her, when in reality, her mother was home but refused to answer the door after 8am as it was her, quote, quiet time. The day following Ziana's disappearance, police learned that she had failed to show up for school the day before and other children reported that she was not at the school bus stop that morning. School authorities said that they had tried several times to call Antoinette to advise her of her daughter's absence, but she did not answer the phone or return their calls. When confronted with the reports that Ziana hadn't made it to the bus stop, Bobby Turnbow changed his story. He told police that Ziana had left by herself that morning, as she usually did, and admitted to lying as he didn't want to draw attention to his criminal past. The criminal past he was referring to was his earlier conviction of child neglect and abuse relating to the charges filed against him in 1994 when he deliberately burned an ex-girlfriend's nine-month-old child with scalding hot water. Upon learning that her great-niece was missing, Stephanie Kahalakulu flew back to the Bay Area where she began pursuing every lead and clue she came across. She hit the pavement and repeatedly retraced the steps that Ziana would take each day on her way to and from the bus stop. She spoke with anyone she crossed paths with and plastered the neighbourhood with missing persons posters. In the months that followed, Stephanie would help to open four successive volunteer centres, lead regular community search parties and organise fundraisers. Help also came in from the families of other missing or murdered children, including Kim Swartz, the mother of six-year-old Amber Swartz Garcia, who went missing from her front yard in nearby Pinole on June 3, 1988 and Mark Klass, the father of 12-year-old Polly Klass, who was abducted at knife point from her Petaluma, California home during a slumber party she was hosting for her two best friends. Polly's body was found 65 days later, and within 12 months, Mark had started the Klass Kids Foundation, which gave him the platform to advocate children's issues and to speak out on crime prevention. It wasn't long before the picture of the dark-haired, toothless, grinning little girl was covering storefronts, lampposts and every law enforcement agency across Northern California. As Christmas approached with still no sign of Ziana, a Christmas tree was erected in the apartment complex's hallway, where neighbours, friends and family left gifts, cards and stuffed teddies. Her best friend, Antonisha, attached a note to the tree that simply read, I'm sad. On December 18th, nine days after going missing, Ziana's case appeared on a segment of America's Most Wanted, and by the year's end, searches had taken place throughout the city, along the waterfront and through the marshes between Benicia and Cordelia, a dense area close to Vallejo that could easily conceal a body. Police even searched the home of Bobby's parents, but turned up nothing. On January 1st, 2000, a search of the apartment Ziana shared with her mother and Bobby turned up the grey sweatpants that Ziana was said to have been wearing on the morning of December 9th. 
This forced Bobby to call a news conference where he declared his innocence, saying, quote, I might do drugs and mess up a bit, but I am not a monster, end quote, and then admitted to failing a lie detector test. On January the 6th, police began an eight-day search of the Roosevelt Regional Landfill that sits along the border of Oregon and Washington and is where the rubbish from Vallejo is dumped. Again, nothing was found. On January 9th, as a grand jury was issuing subpoenas to relatives and neighbours of Ziana, volunteers Kim Swartz and Mark Klass set out on another massive search along with over 800 other volunteers. They recovered numerous items, none of which could be identified as belonging to Ziana. By the end of that month, the grand jury investigation that was focusing mainly on Bobby Turnbow and Ziana's mother Antoinette ended with no charges being filed. No matter how hard the investigators looked into the pair, nothing could be found to indicate they had any involvement in Ziana's disappearance or any knowledge as to her whereabouts. On January 26, 2000, a $75,000 reward was offered for any information that would help to locate Ziana. As Ziana's eighth birthday approached, news crews once again became a common sight on the street outside the apartment complex, forcing Antoinette Robinson and Bobby Turnbow to pack up and relocate in the dead of night due to the constant harassments. Then on August the 12th, 2000, another little girl vanished, plucked from the streets in the same neighbourhood as Ziana. Eight-year-old Mitzi Sanchez was a second grader at Vallejo's Highland Elementary School, Class had not long finished for the day and Midzi was walking home to the house she lived in with her parents and three older siblings. That day, she was on cloud nine. It was her birthday and her mum, Susanna, was at home getting everything ready for her party. Midzi was less than two blocks from her home when she noticed a man looking at her in his rear vision mirror from his car that was parked just ahead of her. Midzi's gut instinct told her to cross the street, but she was almost home and just wanted to get there. As she approached the car, the man inside got out and asked if she could help him reach a roll of duct tape he had dropped on the floor under his seat. Mitzi was more than happy to help, but as she leaned into the car, the man's hand quickly reached from behind, covering her mouth. She tried to scream, but within mere seconds she had been pushed into the vehicle, a tan four-door Oldsmobile sedan, and the man was already driving away. A shocked Mitzi glanced out of the window just as they drove past and away from her house. It was then that the birthday girl knew that she wouldn't be attending her party that day. The man drove her to a nearby shopping centre car park where he forced her to undress and put on a different set of clothes, clothes that he had purchased earlier that day for this very reason. He then pulled out a bottle of alcohol, filled a shot glass and made Midzi drink it before padlocking around her ankle a heavy chain that had already been secured to the floor of his car. For the next two days, Mitzi was chained inside the car as her abductor drove around the Bay Area, regularly stopping to sexually abuse the terrified girl. On day two of her ordeal, her captor made a mistake. He parked his vehicle in an industrial estate and got out, leaving Mitzi and his keys behind. Mitzi saw her opportunity and grabbed the keys. Starting with the smallest one, she desperately tried to unlock herself before the man came back. It worked, and having freed herself, she wound down the window, jumped out, and started running toward the road. She flagged down a passing truck, and as it came to a stop, she climbed up on the side step and launched herself through its open window. She was finally safe. Within hours, Mitzi was being reunited with her family, and her abductor, 39-year-old Curtis Dean Anderson, was in police custody charged with kidnapping, 
aggravated sexual assault on a minor, rape and two counts of lewd acts. Upon hearing of his arrest, many began to wonder if this was the same monster responsible for Ziana's disappearance. Looking into his background, police found that he had an extensive criminal history. Between 1979 and 1991, he had been arrested 10 times on various charges relating to drugs, theft and weapon violations, and had spent time behind bars for three convictions relating to violence towards women. Just one month prior to Ziana going missing, he was released from prison after serving an 80-month sentence for the 1991 kidnapping and false imprisonment of a young woman he had abducted and forced to drive to Oregon. They also found that Curtis Anderson worked as a night cab driver for the same company that had employed both Sianna's mother Antoinette and Antoinette's boyfriend Bobby Turnbow, both of whom were familiar with him and admitted that he had been in their apartment complex just days before Sianna disappeared. As he began his 251-year sentence for the kidnapping and sexual assault of Mitzi Sanchez, Curtis Dean Anderson began implicating himself in the abduction and murder of seven-year-old Ziana Fairchild. As the one-year anniversary of Ziana's abduction approached, Anderson made several claims, telling one reporter that he had drugged Ziana, then put her body in a bag before throwing her down an embankment. He made further claims to fellow inmates that he had filmed himself sexually assaulting the young girl before strangling, then decapitating her. In an attempt to get more information, Ziana's great-aunt, Stephanie Kahalakulu, made contact with Curtis Anderson in prison. Soon he was writing letters and sending them to her post office box claiming that Ziana was still alive. He told Stephanie that he had abducted her and held her captive for several weeks before giving her to someone else, claiming to still have control over her fate from behind bars. He began trying to extort money from Stephanie in exchange for Ziana's safe return. Then on January the 19th, 2001, less than 14 months after going missing, a construction worker found a piece of a child's skull and two pieces of jawbone in a small wooded area that sat in the middle of Soda Springs Road in unincorporated Los Gatos, California. Santa Clara County Crime Laboratory staff used the tooth pulp from one of the jaw's molars to get a genetic profile. They then matched it against DNA taken from tissue samples on Ziana's toothbrush. It was a match. The fate of seven-year-old Ziana Fairchild was finally known but initial studies of the bones revealed that it was likely that Ziana had only been dead for around six months, which would mean that she had been alive up until around the time of Midzi's abduction, but this could not be definitively proven. In the two weeks from when the bones were found to when they were formally identified, Stephanie Kahalakulu was still holding on to the hope that Ziana was still alive. She refused to give up searching and was in talks about an expanded nationwide search until she got word of the match. Upon hearing the news, locals flocked to the search centre where they placed flowers, teddies and balloons and lit purple and yellow candles in memory of the once smiling and happy little girl, and the 15 volunteers who were still active searchers were told it was time to stop. It took a further three years to gather enough circumstantial evidence against Curtis Dean Anderson to charge him in the abduction, molestation and murder of little Ziana. During preliminary hearings, Santa Clara County Judge Ron Del Pozo heard of another two attempted abductions made by Anderson on young girls in Vallejo. He had even managed to get one of those girls into his car, but when another car drove up to him before he'd managed to close the door, he gave the girl $5 and let her go. Curtis Anderson's brother, Zach Anderson, even testified that six months after Ziana's disappearance, 
Curtis had admitted to him that he was responsible, but Zach said he didn't believe his brother because he, quote, had habits of telling tall tales, end quote. Finally, in December 2005, to avoid the death penalty, Curtis Anderson pleaded guilty and was sentenced to a further 50 years to life, bringing his combined sentence to 301 years. That same day, his son Curtis Dean Anderson Jr. was arrested and charged with voluntary manslaughter after he shot and killed 31-year-old Vance Petey Fisher in Richmond over an ongoing dispute. He was later sentenced to a 16-year term and would have been eligible for parole in 2023, but was found on January 21, 2019, hanging in his solitary confinement cell, having committed suicide. While serving his sentence at Corcoran State Prison, Curtis Anderson granted an FBI request for an interview, and on November 5, 2007, he spent five hours describing to them numerous other child abductions and sexual assaults, and claimed to have killed a total of 10 people two in Mexico and eight in the United States, including seven-year-old Amber Swartz Garcia, the daughter of search volunteer Kim Swartz, who was abducted on June 3, 1988. In a sworn statement, Curtis Anderson told the FBI that he had sedated Amber, then drove her to Arizona, where he killed her in a motel room on the outskirts of Tucson, before disposing of her body somewhere near Benson. One month after making this confession and before the FBI could get further information, Curtis Dean Anderson died of natural causes at the age of 46 on December 9, 2007, the eighth anniversary of Ziana's abduction. In 2009, police briefly closed Amber Swartz Garcia's case based solely on Anderson's 2007 confession, but announced in October 2013 that they were reopening it as there is no evidence linking Anderson to her abduction and Amber's remains have never been found. This came as a relief for Amber's family, who did not want her case closed without the evidence needed to prove that Curtis Anderson was the man responsible. The full story of Amber Swartz Garcia will be told next week when we cover the unsolved child abductions involving five little girls, Amber, Michaela Garrett, Eileen Misselhoff, Amanda Nikki Campbell and Tara Cozy who all vanished from the East Bay area between 1979 and 1991. After returning home to her family, Mitzi Sanchez got her birthday party. Family, friends and well-wishers gathered on the front lawn of her family home to show their support, while Mitzi watched on from her upstairs balcony, safe in her daddy's arms. In the years that followed, Mitzi suffered severe PTSD, and by the age of just 12, she had all but given up and turned to alcohol to cope. Then at the age of 16, she almost lost her life when a car she was a passenger in crashed, severely wounding her. When she arrived at the hospital, she discovered she was pregnant, and from that moment on, she was a changed girl. Determined to do anything to provide for and protect her now 12-year-old daughter, Mitzi began her long road to recovery. She now runs the Mitzi Sanchez Foundation, a non-profit organisation that focuses on the prevention of abduction and child sex abuse and she also offers help and support to families of missing children. The Ziana Fairchild Foundation, which was established by Stephanie Kahalukulu on Ziana's eighth birthday to help in the funding of the massive search efforts to find the little girl, is now a non-profit organisation that organises search parties for other missing children. Stephanie has remained in the Bay Area to this day. Other than the skull and jaw fragments that were found in January 2001, no other remains of Ziana Lachey Fairchild have ever been found. 
The following is a list of other alleged murder victims that Curtis Dean Anderson confessed to during his 2007 FBI interview. The FBI released this information in the hopes that someone has information that could help in possibly identifying any of them. Victim 1 was described as a female runaway in her late teens to early 20s. Anderson allegedly met then killed her in late 1984, disposing of her body near a local swimming hole in Marysville, California. Victim 2 was a young female hitchhiker in her late teens who Anderson claimed he picked up on a road near the northeast side of Clear Lake a few days after he killed Victim 1. Victim 3 was another young female also in her late teens, possibly a runaway from Oregon, who he picked up in the Marysville area sometime in 1985. Victim 4 was a light-skinned African-American female who was about 21 years old. Anderson claimed to have met her in November 1986 at a bar in the East Bay area off Interstate 80 on San Pablo Avenue. He claimed this occurred about 10 days after his release from San Quentin State Prison. Anderson allegedly killed her before disposing of her body in the Oakland Hills. Curtis Anderson's next alleged victim was little Amber Swartz Garcia in June 1988. Her case has since been reopened. Victim 6 was a Navajo Indian woman about 23 to 24 years old. Anderson claimed to have picked her up coming out of a bar near the 5th or 6th Street in Benicia, California toward the end of 1988 or the beginning of 1989. He then killed her and dumped her body near Benson, Arizona. He met victim 7 in either February or March of 1997. She was a Hispanic woman in her early 20s who went by the name Rosie. Anderson allegedly met her at the Bears Bar which was located under Highway 87 in San Jose, California near a bowling alley. After killing her, he claimed to have disposed of her body near the Ben Lamond turnoff near Santa Cruz, California. Victim 8 was Ziana Fairchild. He did not give any information in regards to the two victims from Mexico. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the crime tree. All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the crime tree.